Romans chapter 8 from verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray once more. Father, for your glory's sake, will you instruct us this evening? Will you send your spirit that we may understand these things and profit by them? Will you feed our souls? Will you direct our steps that our understanding and our acting may be joined together? Lord, hear our cry. Bless us indeed. Take take account of our weakness. Show us your mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak this evening words of comfort with regard to the present and the future blessings of God's redemption with regard to his people in Christ Jesus. I want to speak those words of comfort rooted in the fact that the Lord God finishes what he starts when it comes to salvation and in fact anything else that could be considered apart from that salvation. You know how in Philippians uh, and chapter 1, the Apostle Paul in verse 6 talks about how God is begun, has begun a good work in them and will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. With regard then to salvation, you can be confident that what God has begun, he will complete. That what is God's work from first to last, resting upon divine grace and divine strength, will and must be accomplished. And again, you have that emphasis there in the beginning of the portion of God's word that we read, whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
Moreover, whom God predestined, these God also called. Whom God called, these God also justified. And whom God justified, these God also glorified. There's your security. Salvation is of the Lord. And so there is rich consolation here for Christians who are considering what it means for God to be for us in salvation, whoever and whatever may be against us with regard to these blessings. And the same truth that brings rich consolation for God's people is hope for those who are still outside the kingdom of God. For all salvation hangs upon what God has said and done. Some of what I want to say is because uh, a friend in Zambia, Pastor Ronald Kalafungwa, was in touch and was asking what I intend to preach about, uh, about this time next year when I'm hoping to be in Zambia to preach at a, a family conference there. I don't normally think that far ahead with regard to sermon series, but it, it got the, the, the ball rolling a little bit. I met Pastor James Swanson for fellowship on Friday. We were talking about this plan of salvation and uh, how it fits together. Uh, I read a, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon that prompted further thoughts along these lines. And so I hope that out of that mix we'll be able to draw some consolation, some comfort, some encouragement as we consider just the last few words of verse 30. Whom God justified, these he also glorified. Whom God justified, these he also glorified. These are the last two stated links in that so-called golden chain of redemption which concludes that section and leads us into the great question, what then shall we say to these things? And I was glad to see that when he was asking what does justification really mean, that Spurgeon turned to exactly the same thing to which I would instinctively turn. Question 34 of the Shorter Catechism. What is justification? It is an act of God's free grace unto sinners effectually called to Jesus Christ, and that's there in verse 30 as well, in which God pardons all their sins and accepts them as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to them and received by faith alone. Justification, then, is God's legal declaration that in his sight, because of the finished work of Christ, those who are trusting in Jesus are no longer tainted by sin and its guilt, but are rather clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and so stand before God possessing in his eyes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and being treated accordingly. This is the essence of justification. Let us look a little more at what it means then for God to have declared us righteous in his sight. This justification that has been granted. For when it says, those whom God justified... Those few words, there's such a depth of blessing, such a, a wonder of divine favour. 
when God declares us to be righteous before him, when God grants justification, then he is doing it mercifully and graciously. Who has God justified? Not righteous people. They wouldn't need God to declare them righteous. They'd have a righteousness of their own. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the sinner. God looks upon those who deserve condemnation and because of his mercy and in his great grace, and notice that I'm using both of those words, the mercy that does not deal with us as we do deserve and the grace that deals with us as we don't deserve. You see, mercy does not punish us. Grace bestows what we did not possess. And that's what God is doing when he declares someone to be righteous. He looks upon a man, a woman, a boy or a girl who deserves to be in hell because of their rebellions. And he says, your sin and your guilt are put away. And in their place, I bestow a righteousness which is divine in its quality. And on that basis, I will always deal with you. That then is a sovereign grant as well. It is this legal declaration by the judge. It's a gift that is granted. This sovereign grace, this sovereign mercy is God's free act toward us because we are sinners we do not deserve this because we sin we cannot earn this because we're fallen creatures we cannot win this because we are in rebellion against God we cannot bargain for this because we are dead in trespasses and sins we can never merit this if God declares a sinner like me or you to be righteous it must be because he has determined to do it merciful gracious and sovereign and that grant then of justification is a saving grant what does paul say later at the beginning of the chapter rather in romans chapter 8 and verse 1 there is now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus the law of god in its punishing intent cannot touch those who are in Christ Jesus God's wrath will never fall upon those who are in Christ Jesus those who are in Christ will never fall into the pit of hell there is peace with God go back further Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 having been justified by faith we have peace with God No condemnation, but a relationship of, of sweetness and joy and communion. That perfect cleansing by the blood of Jesus Christ. That divine righteousness. The, 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 the wrapping around us. The granting to us. The putting to our account of the righteousness of Jesus Christ which pleases his Father. So that as much as the father could ever say of the son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that he now considers us in him and that we are in that sense as pleasing to the father as his only begotten son. 
And so stand, Ephesians chapter 1, accepted in the beloved. That's not a grudging response, so I suppose I'll have to put up with you. No, the love with which the Father has loved the Son, because of the Son's finished work of atonement, because of his perfect sacrifice, that same love is now lavished upon us without the hindrance of our sin in any way to obstruct it. It's a grant that is done faithfully. And I mean that in two senses. First of all, it is given to faith. How do you get to be justified? Trust in Jesus Christ. You cannot earn it. We've said that. You cannot win it. You cannot merit it. You cannot bargain for it. But you can find it in Christ Jesus. Faith is the empty hand that reaches out to take what God has offered in Christ Jesus. And I can say to you this evening, as Christ did on at least one occasion in his earthly ministry to somebody who had a withered, reach out your hand. I want faith. Stretch out your hand. I want this Christ. Then take him. And if you will obey Christ in this, if you will obey God in this, if you will come to Christ in this way, then you will receive the cleansing of your sins and the grant of his perfect righteousness. And you notice that faith then is the instrument. That's the technical language. You don't get justified because you grieved enough, because you felt ashamed enough, because you repented enough, or even because you wanted it enough. You are justified on the basis of the fact that you have trusted in Jesus Christ. It is that simple, it is that sweet, and it is that secure. And it is faithful then in the sense not only is it granted to faith, but it is in accordance with all the promises of God. For so often at this point we say, but what if? What if what? What are we so afraid of at this point? What, what if I don't have enough faith? Whoever believes, not believes enough, believes a lot, but whoever believes, whoever lays hold upon Christ, whoever trusts in him to save what, what, if I, what if I don't last the course? Well, we'll come to some of that. But God has promised that those whom he loves, those whom he calls, them he will justify and those he will also glorify. It is whoever believes. It is as simple as that. And if God has promised, you and I can take him at his word. Are you trusting Jesus? And God has promised that he will justify, he has justified those who belong to him. When God says, look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, there's no footnote there, there's no qualification, there's no except you or only under these certain circumstances. You come to Christ, you trust in Christ, and God declares you righteous in his sight. And so the grant is immediately... There are no delays in justification. There are no degrees in justification. We can't sort of stand all the Christians up here in some kind of ranking order. So you're extremely justified, but down at this end of the line, I'm afraid you're not very justified. To be justified is to be justified. It is absolute. It is entire. There's an instant grant of this legal status with all its associated benefits. 
It is at once complete and absolute. There's no lack in it. There are no gaps in your justification. There are no shortfalls in your justification. There are no holes in Christ's robe. I can't remember who was telling me recently about a visit that they made to Africa. And they hung up their mosquito net. And they went to sleep secure in the knowledge that they were under the net. Only to wake up in the morning and find all the mosquitoes fully sated hanging on the inside of their net. One tiny hole. If a mosquito net is not completely secure, then the mosquitoes will find their way through to your tasty flesh and they will suck your blood. Sometimes we sort of, you, know, you, you put on your coat or you, you know, wear a long-sleeved shirt. That's what they tell you in the tropics. Turn up your collar. Make sure your trousers are long and wear socks and things. I tell you, the blighters will find a way if there's any gap. He said, my face is out in the open. What happens? That's where they end up. It's one of those things that needs to be complete, needs to be watertight. There can afford to be no holes. My friends, there are no holes in justification. There's no place where your salvation can, as it were, leak out. No place where the enemy can come in and take what God has given to you. There's no advance in justification. There's no decline in your status before God. Think of it like this. That if you are now justified, you will never be more justified than you are. I don't know if that helps. You cannot be more righteous in God's sight than you are at this moment because you stand before him on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness. Your guilt is gone. And sometimes you say, but I feel guilty. Then you need to preach God's truth to yourself because the guilt of your sin has been carried away and a righteousness has been granted that means that you stand before God without fear. You might say, how can you be so certain? I'm certain because God gives this justification infallibly. This isn't my idea. This isn't my doctrine. Whom God justified, these God also glorified. This is not a human notion. This is divine revelation. God has said that this is what he does. If, if your lawyer says, I think we can get you off the hook, that's not very credible. If you've got a friend who says, oh, I'm, I'm sure it's not as bad as it seems, that's not very hopeful. But when the judge says, no guilt, I consider you positively righteous in my eyes before the law. Not only is there nothing that can touch you, but you are spotless, you are worthy of being favoured and received and blessed. Who is going to deny the divine judge? Which of us would argue against God? And we might say in a thousand other things, oh, I never would. Then why, brothers and sisters, in this? Why in this would we deny that when God gives his verdict, we are entitled to quibble or to reject what the Lord has said? 
And so he gives it irreversibly. God never calls this judgment back. God does not change his mind. Forgiveness and favour have been granted. And that means that if you have been justified on the basis of Christ's finished work to wash you clean and to make you righteous in God's sight, which blessings have been received by the faith which he purchased at Calvary, then you never will be or can be exposed again to the righteous wrath of God against your sin. Is that not marvellous? You think of all your heaped up transgressions, all your fearful iniquities. Yet God says, I have put them as far from me as the east is from the west. I have cast them into the depths of the sea. They will never belong to you again. I have taken them off and I have clothed you in the righteousness of my son. And so it must be eternally. Because it's Christ's righteousness. The righteousness of the risen and reigning son. I mean, even later on in the chapter, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. My friends, your righteousness is with God. Christ stands in his presence in all the perfection of his finished work and his risen glory, attested, as we heard this morning, to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The deed is done. The work is completed. And Christ, as it were, presents himself as our righteous representative, perpetually before the Father, and the Father looks always upon him. Is Christ going to fall from that position? Is Christ's righteousness going to evaporate? Is there some gap that will be found in ages to come where Christ at any point fell short of the standard of perfection in obedience to his Father's law? No. That status is fixed. And therefore, so must yours be. Because if you are in Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness. And the eternal son of God, clothed in all the majesty of his mediatorial work, accomplished in its saving purposes, carried out in its intercessory labor, is for you now and always. So that when you sing, once in him, in him forever, thus the eternal covenant stands, you can be confident that that eternal covenant not only reaches back before the foundation of the world, but reaches forward beyond the end of this world. He justified. And that is at least something of what it means. But now look with me at the connection that is established in this verse. Whom God justified, these he also glorified. That's the titanium clasp that holds together these two gospel jewels. The same people who have been justified, every person who receives this justification will also be glorified. 
We talk about the certainty of night following day. We think about the seasons. There are no false autumns in this respect. If God has justified, God glorifies. Those two things belong together. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important as a warning for those who hope or expect heaven without any real thought of or regard for God in Christ Jesus. I expect to be in heaven. On what basis? Because only those whom God has justified will be glorified. And if somebody says, well, I don't need that, I don't, I'm not interested in that, I've got no thought of that, or perhaps I can provide my own goodness, I've done enough, I've been enough, I've tried hard enough, or I expect to live my life here as I please. I want to go where I want to go, speak as I want to speak, be with whom I want to be with, live the way that my heart yearns for, but I expect to go to heaven in the end. God, here in his word, says that's not how salvation works. Those who are justified, those are the ones that God also glorifies. But you flip that the other way. Here is consolation. When God justifies, God glorifies. Those things belong together. And as you cannot separate them so as to imagine that you could be glorified without being justified, so you cannot separate them to imagine that you might be justified without also being glorified. The one follows the other as night follows day. They cannot be separated. And so the question that we need to ask when we think about this connection is simply this. Am I justified? And the answer to that question is a slightly rephrased question. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him? Because if you are trusting in Jesus as your saviour, if you have come to him as the one whom God has set forth as the saviour of sinners, then you must be justified. Because whoever has Christ... Or whoever Christ has, all these things belong to that person. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you will be glorified. If you do not, then that will not happen. You come to Christ first. You come to God in Christ. You come to the saviour of sinners. You come to the great bleeding sacrifice. You come to the one who shed his blood to cleanse you and who lived that perfect life in order that you might obtain his redemption. And trusting him, you are justified. And whom he justified, here's the connection, these he also glorified. Justification has been granted, the connection is established, and glorification is promised. And it is promised assuredly. He who does one does the other. God is at work in both of these phases or expressions of this salvation. And it is so certain that the apostle can speak as if it has been accomplished. 
Now, when we speak about it, we necessarily talk about something that lies ahead, and we'll come to that. But notice how the Apostle speaks. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. My friends, this is so certain that you can speak about it as if it's already been carried out. That's how sure you can be. That if God justifies, then God glorifies. You almost want to put them both in in the present tense, or here the the past tense. Paul is, as it were, stepping back, and he's looking at the whole trajectory, and he's seeing it as a done deal with these titanium clasps that hold the different units together as this beautiful chain. When God calls, he justifies. When God justifies, he glorifies. So we can speak about it as if it has been accomplished. And yet in our experience, we have to say that this glorification takes place eventually. We are justified now, and so we must be glorified soon. It's the bud and the bloom. And certainty does not mean immediacy. This experience although certain, still lies ahead. There's actually something quite comforting in that. This is not as good as it gets. This is not yet glory. The kingdom of grace is what we enjoy. The kingdom of glory is what is assured to us. And that promise is what gives us hope. Those realities are what keep us looking forward in eager anticipation of what lies ahead. So this glorification comes assuredly, it comes eventually, and it comes, you'll forgive the clumsiness of this language, appropriately. By that I mean it comes in its proper ways at its proper times. There is an extent to which we can speak of glorification at the moment of our death. We depart to be with Christ, which is far better. That is the moment at which your soul, entirely cleansed from all its sin, now without even any taint of that sin clinging to it, is brought into the very presence of God and for the sake of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, begins to receive the blessings of the glory that lie ahead. It's what Lazarus knew. The poor Lazarus who lay at the rich man's gate and had the dogs licking his sores as he took the crumbs that fell off the rich man's table. And when he died, the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. He was brought into the embrace of the father of the faithful. That picture language that speaks of the place where the faithful dwell. Lazarus was carried there the moment he died. Or the promise that our Lord Jesus made to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. There is immediacy there. There is personality there. There is certainty there. You, oh man, you are going to be with me. Your body will be slung onto the mess, onto the heap onto the the, the trash. But you, in your soul, you will be with me this very day in paradise. My friends, 
That is the first taste of glory. But it is not the last. Because our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, is going to return. And when he comes in his glory, he is going to raise his people from the dead. He's going to come with those souls. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those of us who are alive and remain, we shall be caught up together with them to meet our Lord in the air. So that at that point in time, every one of God's justified people is together glorified in the entirety of our humanity. So that these frail and feeble and sickly and needy and fading and failing bodies will in that moment be transformed. And we will enter into the glory of the new heavens and the new earth with body and soul united to one another and both of those elements of our one humanity entirely perfected. And that most wonderfully, because in that is our conformity to Jesus Christ. Remember what we read. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That speaks not only, my friends, to the fact that Christ is without sin. It speaks to the fact that he is risen in glory from the grave. And as we bore the image of the first man, the man of earth, the Adam who fell, so we must bear the image of the second Adam, the Adam who stood, the heavenly man. That is what it means to be glorified, not just to be with Christ, but to be like Christ, to have his risen humanity worked in us so that we are like him in the resurrection from the dead. And that glorification is then as eternal as our justification. We are perpetually glorified, not perpetually being glorified, but there is no ceasing in our glorification. Again, there's no lessening, there's no slacking. This isn't just an unusually good piece of kit. I don't know. I, I like my things to be over-engineered when I can aff afford them. You know what that means? It's, 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 it's more than it needs to be. You know, this, this bag will last a thousand years. Oh, that's really not relevant to it. But I like the idea of a bag that lasts a thousand years. Some of us were talking this afternoon about you know, tools that have got a 50-year guarantee. Well, even at my age, I'm not going to need a tool that's still going in 50 years. To, but I like the idea of a tool that should be able to last 50 years. That's got some solidity. There's no wearing out of this guarantee. You couldn't outlive it if you tried. God glorifies. And there is an absoluteness also in that state. You cannot lose your status as justified. You cannot lose your state as glorified. It is the point of rest. It is the point where our peace that we now possess is enjoyed to the full. When the joy to which we sometimes attain reaches its highest pitch 
and is sustained. When our delights in God, without any hindrance and without any distraction, reach their fullest and are entered into entirely and eternally. It is the point at which we begin to enter that state of unending praise and unceasing worship to the God of all grace, who foreknew us, who predestined us, who called us, who justified us, who glorified us. And my friends, if you're in that sequence, the God who began will finish. The God who started will end what he has begun. If you desire to be in Christ, if you desire to be with Christ, if you desire to be like Christ, then come to Christ. And God will declare you to be righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ put to your account, received by faith, you cleansed of your sin and clothed in divine righteousness which comes from Christ that makes you acceptable in the sight of God and brings you into that relationship of peace. And if you are now trusting Jesus, God has justified. He has justified you. And those whom he justified, them he also glorified. And that is our comfort and our hope. Amen.